This podcast is generously supported by Themis Bar Review. For more information about Themis, check out themisbar.com. That is T-H-E-M-I-S-B-A-R.com. Thank you very much. And now back to the show. No, seriously, this is Sam, not Dave. Uh, I just can't impersonate him. I don't have a nasalized voice, and I'm not a neoliberal shill, but I am willing to hijack his podcast, the Legal Theory Podcast, where I, Samuel Moyne, and my good friend and co-host, David Schleicher, normally talk about legal theory. This time, uh, I'm going to do it on my own by podcasting a recent event that I held for my class, Foundations of American Legal Thought, at Yale Law School, uh, because I invited one of the great legal theorists of the past half century uh, to talk to the class. It's Duncan Kennedy, and uh, I'm playing the audio that we captured at that event. It's a great conversation. Listen up. Duncan Kennedy is the Carter Professor of General Jurisprudence Emeritus at Harvard Law School, where he taught his whole career. Uh, he went to Yale Law School, and a lot of the questions I ask at the start have to do with his time uh, at Yale between 1967 and 70. And uh, then we get into some of his early articles, uh, which were uh, instrumental in the origins of the so-called critical legal studies movement. And then we conclude the conversation with a discussion of the law and political economy movement, which uh, is a kind of successor to CLS, but seems to take a different form and some of whose uh, members distance themselves from uh, CLS and its legacy. And so it's worth uh, asking Kennedy what he thinks about that. Uh, to me, this is an epic event. Uh, Duncan is a former colleague of mine, and uh, he's had an extraordinary impact on legal theory uh, in our time. So you attended Yale Law School uh, from 1967 through seventy. And it was an extraordinary moment to be a young person, to be in law school. Uh, none of us have had anything like that experience, uh, a, a time of anger and rage, but I believe also a time in which extraordinary hopes and possibilities uh, were conceivable in ways that have not been available for uh, later generations. So I just want to begin by asking you, what was it like to haunt these halls in that particular moment? It's really a very powerful experience to be back. I've only been back 
a couple of times, maybe three times since I graduated in 1970, and never in a situation of actually being in contact with significant numbers of students. Um, So let me, what I would, if I had one thing to say, so I guess the first, the basic thing to say about the experience was that it was a generational experience, and the generation was not law students, it was a generational experience of, you might say, the um, educated student and general student mass of the American population, including people from different social classes, going to educational institutions from community colleges to state universities to the Ivy League, from undergraduates to graduate students. So that uh, was an event in American history, um, not particularly confined to law schools. So law schools were, relatively speaking, not part of the generational rebellion. Just a couple of words about the generational rebellion. It had um, two very different dimensions. It was a political rebellion focused on the war in Vietnam and the draft. And it was that was part of American political history. Why did the war in Vietnam continue when it did? Why did it end when it did? What was the impact on American politics of the anti-war movement? But the generational event was just as much a cultural event as it was a political event. And the cultural event can be roughly described as the the arrival of a counterculture. The counterculture was as important and not the, and often in conflict with or not didn't go along perfectly in sync with the political movement, which was about the war in Vietnam, with a secondary dimension, which was the civil rights movement reaching a kind of paroxysm as Nixon took over. Um, and it was ob- and the end of the war in court. So there's the war in Vietnam. The war in court is just ending exactly as we're finishing law school. Um, the civil rights movement is stymied. Martin Luther King was killed. Bobby Kennedy was killed. Uh, so the background experience of the national political crisis often supersedes the counterculture. So there's an incredibly powerful intersection of a generational rebellion and a, a kind of counterculture that comes with it, uh, with uh, an engagement with politics uh, in the ordinary sense of the word, national politics uh, and international politics. How did the countercultural commitments of Yale law students in the late sixties manifest themselves? Uh, I assume uh, you mean things like what you wore, how you uh, presented yourself. You did it as a gesture against the counterculture, a counter counterculture. So if you want to imagine it, people are walking around. Um, they could be, first of all, nobody's wearing a tie, but also everyone's wearing bell bottoms. There's strong fashion coherence, and there's lots of native uh uh, indigenous people inspired fashions. There's lots of beards. 
there's lots of long hair, very distinct from beards. So the guys with the, the hair down to below their waist, uh, there is a, a hippie encampment for a good deal of 1969-70 in the courtyard, which is something called the Hog Farm, which was an actual commune, some part of which has somehow connected with a couple of law students who invite them and they hang out and they just smoke weed from day to beginning of the day to the end, although marijuana is illegal. And in fact, there's a danger that they will bring the police down onto the school. By the, so this is the counterculture. In the counterculture, that I've done a slightly folkloric way of describing it. Another thing to say about it would be this. It included a deep, not a superficial critique of the culture of the Yale Law School. And as representative of the culture of the dominant institutions for which people like us were being trained. So it wasn't just law professors, it was also economics professors, sociology professors, and English professors, and art professors, uh, as opposed to artists. What were professors of that time like? They were uptight, priggish, closed-minded within their professional disciplines, and they also had an attitude towards students, which was very powerful patriarchal attitude. So students were there to learn, in short. So the experience was of generational revolt. To understand it, you have to imagine that you're sitting there and you and a lot of people around you are experiencing them as scary, powerful, but unbelievably unsympathetic. And on some level, they, quote, just don't get it. There's some way in which they're culturally deprived. The counterculture says we have something to offer people like that, which is some deep psychic, psychosexual, emotional, liberatory moment against the closeness that we are just, there's no edges in the way they appear. And it's very important to understand that it's not that they're conservatives. At the Yale Law School, there were really smart, interesting liberal law professors, and they were the dominant group by far. And they were really smart. They were elaborators of the program of improvement of the society through things like civil rights, but also welfare, the expansion of the welfare system, the great society. And they were liberal also in the sense that they read beyond law. They understood themselves to be cultivated people. Didn't matter. So the generational experience is those virtues are to be appropriated by a student. If you can, you get access to their virtues, uh, and their work is really interesting and important, but they're part of the problem on some very deep level. Now, this is really a terrifying experience for the faculty. So representing it now because I'm an old guy and I've been a faculty member at a law school, I've come to really appreciate just how terrifying it was. And also I participated in a generational moment at Harvard Law School in 2016 and 17, which uh, the last time I was here was while that was happening at Harvard, come to see what was happening at Yale. And nothing was happening at Yale, literally nothing. But lots, there There was another generational vote, mainly black students with white allies, 
not black and white students, black students with white allies, really, really did shake up the school. Basically, its critique of institutional racism is built into the whole fabric of the institution. And it was just amazing how the faculty clinched, developed the sense that the sky was falling and pretty soon they were going to, so to speak, burn down the library, which was at the Yale Law School, the fire in the library in the spring of 1970, which nobody knows who said it, was a symbol for the faculty of what it meant to be in the midst of a crazy, anarchist, utterly destructive, tearing everything down moment of revolt. So even though they were themselves liberals, not conservatives or reactionaries, the faculty experience the generational rebellion is deeply troubling. Uh, I, I'm wondering, what was their dispute within your generation? Or was it really uh, just between the elders and the young people radicalized by the counterculture and the larger political events of the moment? Again, it's not the same as, but it's closely connected to um, the phenomenon of political rebellion. That it, the intensity of the experience comes from the fact that it's sudden. And when it's sudden, in generational revolts are part of the story of literature and politics, particularly in Latin America and other Spanish-speaking areas of the world. So they have a whole thing of the generation of 1896, the generation of this, the generation of that. And in these moments, it's striking and common that people, some people in the revolt experience themselves as having another thing, a moment of creativity and create creation that's intellectual and aesthetic, intellectual, aesthetic, and emotional, in which new things emerge. So these generational revolts, the this one, the, the people who were there were both people who deeply uh, were into it and were thrilled by it, and their work was transformed, and they created new things as a result of participation in the generational revolt. And some of those people would include, say, I don't know, how many of you have ever heard of Richard Epstein? A few. So Richard Epstein, who is a serious University of Chicago to the right of neoliberalism, libertarian, utilitarian, he is a true reactionary. His spirit was formed at the Yale Law School where he was an SDV student between 1967 and 1970. So his being is organized around hating it. So in the generational revolt, lots of people just hate it as students. The faculty is terrified, but fellow students feel that they're being coerced, jerked around, uh, and orthodoxy is being imposed on them, and they can't even, you know, they have to change what they, they can't wear a tie unless they're willing to wear the tie as an act of rebellion. And if they're willing to do that, everyone will immediately identify them as the other to the generational revolt. But actually, there are a lot more of them than the people wearing ties. So in the generational revolt, who knows? I sometimes think that in my generation of people in elite education, the generational revolt was maybe a third, but it was as much as a third. Maybe it was a half. And the countercultural thing affected everybody by repolarizing everything, but it wasn't that everybody agreed with it. For people on your side, what was it like uh, personally, spiritually, uh, to uh, engage in this kind of 
fundamental challenge to the very institution you chose uh, as your portal to uh, your own future. It was unbelievably exciting, both the countercultural dimension, which was which was about the the micro life of everyday life, was basically up. The, the phrase uptight was the thing that, in a sense, we were against. And then it was also incredible intellectual creativity because we were fighting our elders. And the elders were, were the adversaries, but direct encounter, intellectual encounter with the people older than you is what I want to leave as the central characteristic of this Yale Law School generational rebellion. So to imagine what it's like, you have to imagine that you here in this room would have very serious developed intellectual based critiques of the work of your most popular and influential teachers, particularly public intellectuals. So what that would be would be you would be confronting them not on the, whatever the million grounds on which one can complain about one's elders. There are millions of grounds. One's elders are, let's face it, they suck. But this means something else. This means you write your paper, you write your paper to attack who? Um, whoever you consider to be the establishment. And the good teaching is the smart establishment, not the low-hanging fruit, dumb members of the faculty who you don't respect, but the people you respect the most. So there, you have to imagine what it's like to be engaged in taking them on. You're famous as one of the three founders uh, at Harvard Law School where you went next of the critical legal studies movement. Uh, it wasn't named that for a while, but you joined together with two other new hires uh, Morton Horwitz and Roberto Unger to engage in some new ways of thinking uh, in legal scholarship after 1970 as junior faculty members there. So I want to ask, uh, were you all on the same page uh, or were you actually doing radically different things? I guess uh, that's a it's a difficult question, of course, that kind of a question. So I guess the first thing I would say about it would be that um, the thing that we shared in Roberto Unger totally, completely, is related to the generational, it's a generational experience of the period between 67 and 70 in American history, now transposed into being an assistant professor and beginning to take on writing things. And here the idea was, again, a generational thing, which is we were committed to bringing new approaches and new ways that specifically came from left traditions of thinking about society, which included Marxism, but not only Marxism, because they involved many other aspects of critical theory as developed in Western Europe uh, between maybe 1895 and that moment. So a big thing we were doing, as we understood it, was we understood our colleagues, the smartest and best and smartest of them, were, from our point of view, ignorant of critical social theory, and the way we understood it, they had 
been, they were too young for the generational revolt of legal realism. And what they had inherited and what they were exponents of was a, a, a normalized legal realism, which was very sophisticated, interesting, and we believed in it and we used it. It was great. But it was utterly deprived of legal realism's actual philosophical, radical ambitions, either politically or intellectually. So first thing was not that. And that, that's the first thing. So then what's very important is that we were completely eclectic. So um, we were, we'll take anything from anywhere was the idea. And we were reading like mad and sharing our readings with each other. So I got many, uh, Morty turned me on to many books that influenced me. And so did Roberto. And they appear in my bibliographies, which are very elaborately acknowledging the different strands. But from there would then would be, if you like, tendencies of the three of us to understand different tendencies. So Morty Horowitz was very committed to the idea, uh, to, to, uh, to doing a thing which was extremely intellectually adventurous and surprising at the moment, which was not Marxism. It was rather to take it for granted that economic forces and powers in the society powerfully influence what the legal rules are as that idea was developed in the progressive historiography of the late 30s, 50s, and 60s. And it was about the Supreme Court. That historiography was about the Supreme Court. So these American historians, none of whom was a distinguished lawyer, developed, in effect, a kind of populist critique of the Supreme Court's decisions um, between 1895, 1895 and, <coughs> and 1937 as pure reactionary capitalist interests dominate law uh, constitutional law, Lochner is the rule of big capital. So his idea was a much more sophisticated idea about economic interests, but it was completely new. It was about economic interests in private law. Now, there were some predecessors for Morty um, who did the critique of contracts and property and torts from a particular point of view, emphasizing the political a submission of the legal rules to the economic powers, but nothing like what he did. So he was able to show the intricate doctrines of contracts, property, and torts in the 19th century, the way they evolved in a way that fit the, the self-conception of economic interests. So these people claim that they're in development, and they are. They have a theory of development, and they're imposing it. They are judges, and they're imposing it to transform private law, brand new. So Roberto is different. So Roberto, so Morty then is, is, is actually receiving something from that materialist tradition emphasizing that influence on law. So I hear you that Morton Horowitz wasn't a Marxist, let alone a vulgar one. As you say, he was interested in the relation between the evolution of private law doctrine in the 19th century in his great uh, classic, The Transformation of American Legal Thought, uh, and relating them to economic interests. Uh, so there's still a, a, 
a kind of superstructure base model the, uh, with which Horowitz works and 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 doctrine is uh, is not autonomous but related to let's call them external economic interests. Uh, what about Roberto? Is he doing the same thing as Morty or something different? Roberto Unger was completely different. He was importing the, the tradition of European critical social thought and philosophy to the study of the politics, if you like, the, to, how, how shall I put it, to understanding the philosophical bases of the Western legal order and then of the role of the legal order in the evolution of Western capitalism. So a very, very, very high level of abstraction for both projects, but understanding them as doing legal philosophy as no legal philosopher at the time was doing it. That is because of its effort to incorporate sources outside the liberal tradition. So for Roberto, the key thing is outside the conventions of the liberal tradition. All right, then what about you? You uh, also developed uh, uh, a new way of thinking about law and focusing on the things you initially wrote, legal formality, uh, your first major article, and then above all, the long unpublished manuscript uh, called The Rise and Fall of Classical Legal Thought on the one hand, and then your own classic Harvard Law Review article of 1976, Form and Substance in Private Law Adjudication. What were you trying to do and what was distinctive about it? What I was about was um, very really sharply distinct from each of the three, but, you know, I read them. They influenced me at every stage. I would say I had far less influence on them than they had on me. I'm happy to say that. I'd say it was their loss, but um, I don't think there's any question that that was the structure. So I was interested in a very specific reception, which was a reception into legal, uh, to into the understanding of law as a distinct element of the social system of critical uh, continental philosophers who were, could be described as focused on the idea of that there is such a thing as a, an ethos, a way of thinking, a consciousness, um, an underlying um, structure of cognition that could be described for law in a way that was um, directly claimed that you could talk concretely about it against the background in which almost everybody in the social sciences at this point thought that idea was ridiculous that spirit of the age thinking or thinking about consciousness were cracked. They were not, they'd failed to meet the challenge of pragmatism, empiricism, pragmatism, and the, the critique of high-flown, meaningless 19th century baloney. So there the idea, the, the symbolic person would be Morton White's 
revolt against formalism. So the basic idea is we're past all that. Blah, 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 blah. You know, what do you mean, this, you know, the spirit of the age? So the tradition that I relied on was I wanted to participate in and I wanted to write a book that would be recognizably part of this European tradition, which included Marx and included Weber and included Hegel, very, very much all of them. Now, here's the wrinkle. The idea, my idea, which was not shared by either Morty or Roberto, was that legal realism was an extremely important contribution to the future of critical theory in the world. Legal realism, the internal critique of doctrine, which you may have been introduced to as formalism, um, the but but wasn't of of wasn't about formalism. It was the internal critique of the normal reasoning of judges could be critiqued and could be understood as loaded with contradictions, gaps, ambiguities that pervaded the discourse, making it a discourse that allowed much more gray area or room for maneuver, dramatically, dramatically more, and that the problems weren't just all legal rules are a little bit uncertain. All right, so I get that you departed from the other founders of CLS, or what's going to become CLS in just a few years, in retrieving the legacy of early 20th century legal realism and putting it to new purposes. Uh, what were those new purposes? The problem was contradiction in the sense of the ethos of the system embraced contradictory ideas like individualism and altruism. So deep, deep in the system was the attempt to overcome a contradiction in consciousness. And that was part of the countercultural moment in this sense. This is, I'm just talking about myself. So the idea that a sophisticated person who has lived through the generational rebellion comes to understand themselves as internally contradictory beings who have contradictory desires and impulses and who is constantly confronted with the fact that the theories that they're telling us we should follow don't work. So over and over again, what it is to be an actor alive in this world is to make political choices lifestyle choices which presuppose the fluidity of the eye as opposed to the fixity of the eye. And the fluidity is based on this uh, background condition of experiencing the dissolution of the certain the ethical, social certainties characteristic of the older generation, but now totally characteristic of our generation too. So it was a rebellion against the way my generation embraced particularly say, ideas about liberation, personal self-liberation, which were just silly when you got right down to it, and also political ideas about revolution, which were foolish in the context. So that left you, um, the appeal of the critical theory was the critical theory was an exploration of the experience of the instability of one's own being in life and the way in which it was what is threatened, has to make choices all the time, in which, again, then, to be a politically serious person was to accept that, but then still be oriented to political action, 
I mean, you could be a rightist or a leftist within this ethos, but the particular the acquisition, and I understood myself to be a leftist, so I was preoccupied with the dilemmas of the leftist, as opposed to with the certainties of the leftist. And this tradition fed into that. So just following up before we turn to the present, I, I, I do want to press you on how the, the approach, what you call in form and substance, the method of contradiction is left or even political uh, in the sense that there are at times in the article um, signs of a, a sense of resignation to the situation that the article unveils uh, this self-division because it's not just two teams, but even a conflict within each one of us between individualism and altruism. And it's remarkable, though you're about to found a leftist movement, the piece says this method has elements that are pessimistic, even defeated. And I've always wondered, is this, among other things, a, a testament to the experience of a generation that has seen its utopian expectations crash into the grim realities of the 70s? It's certainly that, without question, that the ethos of form and substance is defined by the fact that by 1976, the 60s are over and the left has crashed. So, I mean, you'd say resignation is not non-leftist. You can be a leftist and be resigned and a leftist and not be resigned. An interesting question then, for so... As you put it, uh, this is exactly what I hope we could talk about, at least for a moment. So the ethos that I just described, in which one experiences a kind of unmoredness as an important aspect of one's being, is, of course, not left or right. And responses to that experience are the basis both of left and of right, large theoretical constructions. They're not the same thing. Now, a very common critique was that if it's not doesn't have left content, what's its usefulness to the left? Now, the thing about form and substance is that it was actually a key instrument of political organizing of law professors and law students who read it as leftists, only interested in themselves with leftist projects, and experience the idea that you could be a serious leftist while not affirming the self-certainties of the left, while saying, I'm a really serious leftist, but I don't know what the fuck is going on, and my own identities are labile, was one of the things that allowed it to work as an organizing device. Because there were many, many people in my generation whose basic experience was their desire to be serious left progressives came up over and over again. There are these dogmas. The people who call themselves leftists are saying, you have to do this. You have to believe that. You have to be that. There was also a macho culture. Leftists are people who are unequivocal. That is what it is to be a leftist. So this article is against that. And in that sense, it's in the spirit of postmodernism and deeply influenced by that element of postmodern theory. Though 
Derrida is not there. Um, the, and that is a claim, an aspiration, a hope that you can be a seriously committed person without having to buy in to the way in which the atmospheres and styles of political mobilization around you seem to be shutting you down rather than opening you up. So against those dogmatisms, um, well, which are obviously a problem of the left today, as they were a problem of the left throughout, this article argues precisely for the organizing left potential of a stance that adopts, that abandons those modes of self-certainty. All right, so the last question, because of time for me, is going to be about the present. Um, and it's about the fact that there's a, a new movement in the world. It's associated with this law school. It, some of its founders are in the room. Uh, it's called Law and Political Economy. And I've noticed uh, a temptation in building that movement, which is as yet you know, not fully defined, to... Um, regard CLS as damaged goods in the building of a, a, a left-wing response uh, to our time. Did CLS miss the point of the neoliberalism that was emerging at the very moment you were writing the pieces we briefly talked about? Did your assertion of the autonomy or what you call relative autonomy of legal consciousness uh, against Horwitz, in a sense, um, neglect the, the pressing need to connect law to material transformations uh, and the very kinds of developments you know, we both have lived through uh, because it's it's very important, I think, to get a sense of what you think uh, the legacy of CLS ought to be for a future left-wing intellectual movement, whether it's LP or something else. So it's very difficult to deal with a question like that because I think it's clearly the case that for lots of people involved with CLS, with LPE, CLS is damaged goods, but what does that mean exactly? There are cultures of emerging political organizations. LP might be a movement. Maybe it's a movement. Maybe it's, it's yet a network. Maybe it's a proto-movement. But such, when movements get going, I know this from my own experience of Generation Rebellion, you reconstruct all the predecessors and how you construct them is really, really important to you. Um, no, in the in the situation of being reconstructed, um, I recognize that my own work is one of the things that people in LPE feel that at some level they ought to at some have an opinion about it. That would be very bad for the movement, for LPE as a movement, if the basic consensus is we are doing CLS again for a different period. There's some modifications, but LPE is basically warmed over CLS. No, 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 no. I hope you don't believe that and you never come to believe that. You need to believe something very different from that. Now, 
then all one can ask as a person who must be now reconstructed, so you guys have to reconstruct us, just, you know, be gentle, don't exaggerate, don't exaggerate, don't do things that are so, don't take strong positions about what CLS said, never having read a single word of CLS. That would be the first desperate desire. Don't say this is what CLS is and how it's a failure when you've literally never read an article because the articles are very surprising and almost all the things that you just said about them would be obviously just not true. I like that answer, but I do want to press you on it a little bit because if you read your main contributions in the early 1970s and other structuralist articles like your uh, classic interpretation of Blackstone's commentaries in 1980, uh, there's not a strong emphasis on an alternative to rising law and economics. Rather, there's an attempt to uh, anatomize doctrine, assess uh, the contradictions within it, and uh, at at times uh, come close to a kind of deconstructionist commitment to uh, play in the system that allows uh, uh, new options to emerge. Uh, in my sense, the law and political economy has a rather different focus, which is, if you like, more Horwitzian to connect uh, the uh, real economy and the rise of neoliberalism to the way that law institutionalized and legitimated those outcomes. So people like me wrote, I, my CLS production has this part that I'm so thrilled you've resurrected it. But a major part of my work is about the critique of the law and economics movement and doing positive economic analysis of progressive proposals for housing. So I work in the tradition of positive economic policy analysis of housing. And I've written lots of things about that. Now, maybe they're inadequately grounded in some way to my mind, they're grounded in the economic analysis of the economy. I mean, I'm sorry, there isn't an alternative to sophisticated neoclassical analysis that is not about selfishness, it's not about individualism, it's completely open across a very wide methodological range of things, but you need to do it before you propose policies. So I would say my own role in the situation, far from trying to reestablish the legitimacy of those wildly theoretical endeavors would be to say, in LPE, our problem is the failure to... And so I, I published a piece in the blog on rent control. So if you'd like to know my thoughts about this specific thing, please go to my blog post called In Defense of Rent Control and Rent Caps. So that's a typical example of CLS work. And at the end of it, I mildly suggest some ways in which LPE might profit from a little more focus on working out 
the ways in which proposals that sound great from a rights point of view, from a humanity point of view, from a uh, autonomy point of view, from the point of view of fighting back against surveillance, need to have distributional analysis built into them. And the failure of a lot of work on the left, progressive work, LPE, non-LPE, all over the place, over and over again, to my mind, is that. So that's where I would like CLS to be deeply a helpful contributor in the form of models of how to do policy analytics using the available resources for strictly left and radical purposes. So not just moderate liberal purposes, but radical purposes. Radical purposes meaning, let's say, not just rent control as control of the price, but the model of rent control that sprung up from radical initiatives in the 60s, which is rent control that fully controls what the landlord can do, effectively deprives him of nine-tenths of what's in the bundle of rights in order to guarantee not the fight against the landlord, but the fight against gentrification. So a typical example of bad analysis on the left would be to think that landlord-tenant law is about a struggle between landlords and tenants above all. It is about that. But in the modern context of rising rents in the United States, a typical dumb left idea is it's rent gouging by landlords using apps to just raise the rents. No, the problem is the middle and upper middle classes of our society are buying out the housing of the lower classes of the society because they can afford it, they want it, it's great, and the bargaining power of people at the bottom is getting smaller and smaller. So the rents are not increasing because landlords are more sick, more viciously gouging. The rents are increasing because tenants of our briefly large category of all the different dimensions of the elite, even if not born to the elite, future earners of the elite are simply crushing people lower on the social hierarchy by taking away their housing. So this would be the kind of thing that CLS might usefully offer to the, and by the way, I do say it, I mean, I'm, I totally, by the way, now I should say, I am completely a fan and advocate of the law and political economy movement. So, and in fact, I would say many of the people who are very active in it are my friends and my students. And we're my students. I think it's just a fantastic development. If it turned into a movement in the sense of a self-organizing, contagious thing like that movement for that the 60s generational movement, it was narrow, but it was real. A movement means everybody is thinking how they come contribute as individuals to a common project without a central control. I don't think it's there yet, but it could very well end up there. And I think it's by far the most exciting thing that has happened in law schools literally since the 60s. So during this whole long period, there's been nothing else like it. Now, the brief moment of George Floyd um, uh, combined with Me Too in the period of between 2015 and 2018 or 19 was a tiny thing that might have exploded in that direction. It was enough to scare the shit out of a very large number of people, but it didn't take off. Maybe at 
There are many reasons for that. Maybe this will. 